0: to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan has a five-month-old baby Van Shank, And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy has a five-month-old
1: baby Swingle. So, Jeremy, why do they call you "has a five-month-old baby swingle"? Well, I suspect it's probably the same reason that they call you "has a five-month-old baby <laughs> Van Shank." So let me put the ball in your court there.
0: <laughs> well, you see, the joke here is that we both have five-month-old babies. Yeah, it's it, it, It's actually very cool. Our our wives gave birth to our first our firstborn sons like within three days of each other. So it's been very, very cool to do these last like five months, and you know the 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 nine months before that as well, sort of you know together as friends.
1: John neglected to mention that my son was born first.
0: yeah, it's a bit of a sore topic
1: <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like it's kind of like in John uh the Gospel of John at the resurrection when uh, John sees fit to mention that he runs uh, sorry how what is it so so John outruns Peter to the tomb. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that shouldn't matter. Like in context, the idea is that Jesus rose from the dead and that's pretty cool, right? But John sees fit to mention three times in his account of the resurrection and the empty tomb that he beat Peter in a running race to the tomb. Which is great because if you read the other gospels, it doesn't mention John at all.
0: So, you know, I love, (laughs) so I I just love this idea that, you know, John is, you know, writing his gospel maybe a little bit later than the other gospel he's like dang it all of those other
1: guys keep forgetting i beat peter there so likewise of course what it matters far more (laughs) that the babies are here than who who beat who but um yeah it's pretty great uh yeah my son josiah he spits up all over me every day and so it's pretty wonderful um and he laughs a lot and uh screeches a lot he hasn't quite figured out the whole laughter thing so sometimes it's like a real giggle and then sometimes he you know makes my ears bleed (laughs) and that's fatherhood and it's wonderful
0: How, how about you john it truly is yeah so my my son elisha he uh is it's great he's like learning new things every day um the the most recent thing is he's figured out that he can like reach and grab my beard and That's just I, you know, apart from his fingernails being a little bit long, uh, I I tend to think of that as just he's kind of exfoliating my skin a little bit. But it's just very, very sweet to kind of have that, you know, point of contact and and interaction with my son. And so he's just he's great. He, He also spits up a lot. Uh, I love the um, <laughs> comparison that you made the other day, Jeremy. That you know they're like little Uno attack babies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you press the button, you never know if they're going to spit up on you or not, or how much there's going to be. Right? It's just like the world's <laughs> longest game of Uno attack, and you're wondering when they're finally just going to be able to digest their food. But more to the point, uh, <laughs> by way of introducing us back into the bible um i do find it interesting that i named my son after a king and you named your son after a prophet and i wonder if that has some sort of relevance for the future and their friendship with one another yeah yeah for sure i i I, I, josiah might get told off a lot by by (laughs) by
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, also like you know, whoever has the next kid, you know, maybe we could name him like uh, Phineas or something, and get the priest in there. And then we've got like the three main offices of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything else to say about that? That's that's pretty dope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Well, I- anyway, so we um we just wanted to give a little bit of an announcement before we get into the main episode here, and that is that we've bu- gotten some great feedback on our first three episodes. Uh, a reminder to everybody, you can give us your feedback at thejohn315podcast at gmail.com, uh, and so we, we got a lot of great feedback on it, and we are excited to keep putting out content And so we've decided that kind of given our lifestyles with young children, uh, we can probably uh, uh, upload episodes on a, you know, once every other week schedule. So we are going to be dropping them on Saturday night, uh, sometimes potentially maybe very late on Saturday night. But you should on the Lord's Day every other week have your uh, uh, Bible fix from the two dudes here at the John 315 podcast. But with that, let's get to some Bible. Cut the chit-chat. Let's crack open the word. So today we're going to be talking about Matthew 27, verse 46. Let me read it for you here in the ESV. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the scene that we're seeing right here is Jesus after he has been put up on the cross, and this is one of the last things that he says before his death. But the question that we're really concerned with here is, did God the Father actually forsake God the Son on the cross? I mean, at first glance, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? really appears to be saying, well, kind of exactly that. And there also seem to be a lot of Christians who agree with that particular interpretation. Here's just a quick rundown of some sources who do
1: make that claim. Jeremy, do you have some examples you could share with us? Sure do. Um, Three examples that I was able to find, uh, prominent examples. The first being the evangelical theologian Wayne Grudem, who's written a very famous systematic theology. Lots of seminary students uh, use Wayne Grudem's systematic, and it's a great book. Um, But uh, here's going to be a quote that we might take some umbrage with a little later. Quote, Jesus faced this pain alone. Far worse than desertion by even the closest of human friends, that being Peter, James, and John, was the fact that Jesus was deprived of the closeness to the Father that had been the deepest joy of his heart for all his earthly life. Later, he says, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He showed that he was finally cut off from the sweet fellowship with his heavenly Father that had been the unfailing source of his inward strength and the element of greatest joy in a life filled with sorrow. Then, a little later in the quote, "He was abandoned by his heavenly Father. He faced the weight of the guilt of millions of sins alone." So that's Wayne Grudem's take. How about a second source here? It's a famous hymn, and again, I really love this hymn. Um, <laughs> but uh, this one line, I'm not sure i quite I quite agree with. let's let's take a look. How deep the Father's love for us is the hymn. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. Now, this one's somewhat ambiguous. Uh, The intent of the lyrics could be to say that the sight of the perfect son on the cross suffering is so horrifying that the father, you know, emotionally can barely stand to look upon it. As written, though, I do think some who sing this song are thinking of this line in the sense that the father is abandoning the son. He's turning his face away. He's, you know, leaving the son to die and, as Grudem said, to face the weight of the millions of sins alone. And lastly, for a third source, um, even Billy Graham, um, the departed and beloved saint and great evangelist, uh, made a similar claim on an article on his website. Um, and I think we'll be able to link this in the show notes, right, John? Totally. Excellent. Um, just so you can kind of see uh, what I'm talking about, um, before he went to be with the Lord in 2016, Billy Graham wrote, quote, but as he died, all our sins were placed on him and he became the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. And in that moment, he was banished from the presence of God for sin cannot exist in God's presence. His cry speaks of this truth. He endured the separation from God that you and I deserve. Now later, Graham is careful to say that the father did not actually abandon the son, but he doesn't cite scriptures for his claim that Jesus was, quote unquote, banished from the presence of God, for sin cannot exist in God's presence. So, you know, there there is some qualification here, and I don't think any of these sources are saying that somehow the father and the son were in dispute with one another or just angry with one another, but there does seem to be this rhetoric of abandonment or being cut off. And I'm not actually sure that it's true that Jesus endured the separation from God that you and I deserve. And uh, so let's get into it. I don't think it is accurate to say Jesus was abandoned or forsaken on the cross, at least not in the sense people would typically understand those words to mean. Certainly, Jesus was abandoned and forsaken by man, but by God? Today, we're going to make the claim, and, you know, I won't. uh, leave you hanging as far as what what we're going to be arguing today. Jesus felt forsaken and abandoned by God the Father and felt separated from him. And in fact, Jesus did take on the sins of the world, of course, and died for our sins and, and suffered the penalty for those sins that we deserve to suffer. But he was not, in fact, actually forsaken by God the Father. When Jesus says, why have you forsaken me to his Father, he's expressing deep pain not making an absolute theological claim that God the Father has forsaken him. With that said, let's dive right in to see why we might make this pretty controversial claim. It's time for the meat.
0: So the first thing that we really need to be careful about when interpreting this verse is to see that Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are actually a direct quotation from Psalm 22. In fact, just the first verse there. So right away, if we're wanting to be careful interpreters of the New Testament here, and we've come across a quotation from the Old Testament, we there's kind of a process that we should follow to make sure that we are properly interpreting things. And in particular, there are two questions that you need to ask yourself in situations like this. The first is, this quotation from the Old Testament, what did that quotation mean in its original context? So to the actual Jew who wrote this were down or to the audience that would be hearing it, how would they have interpreted those words? And then the second question is, clearly this New Testament author is trying to utilize this text, so how are they expecting this quotation to function and to be heard by their particular audience? So it kind of needs to go in that order of first, what did the verse mean originally in its first context, and then secondly, how is the New Testament author trying to utilize it here?
1: let's jump right into that first question. Um, What does Psalm 22 verse 1 mean? Well, we're actually going to read the entirety of Psalm 22, which is a whole 31 verses right now on the podcast. And the reason we're going to quote this at such length is it's really the most important thing to understand if we want to know what Jesus is saying on the cross, even more than the Matthew 27 context. Um, that being said, though, as I read it, we are going to notice that Psalm 22 is referenced in multiple other parts of Matthew's account of Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew 27. So we are going to reference a little bit as we go through this psalm, okay? Starting from uh, the title here of Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. So David was the author of this psalm. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him." Now that part sounds familiar, huh? Yeah, totally. It's interesting, just a few
0: verses before our main quotation in Matthew, so looking at Matthew 27 verses 43 and 44, there is the uh, religious leaders who actually mock Jesus using these same words. They say he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, for he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then out of the quotation, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him, that is Jesus, in the same way. So note that the religious leaders at the cross are mocking Jesus using the very same words uh, that we see here in Psalm 22. And in fact, the robbers who are crucified with him are also mocking him. This actually connects really well with verse 7 in Psalm 22, when it says, All who see me mock me.
1: Continuing on with the quote now, um, starting at verse 9 in Psalm 22. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bowls encompass me, strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Comment here. Obviously, this is incredible. Sounds exactly like the crucifixion. Jesus is surrounded by evil-doing mockers, and they literally pierce his hands and feet. Then going on to verse 17. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots.
0: Again, this sounds super familiar too. In Matthew 27, 35, which is again, just even a little uh, earlier in the account of Jesus's crucifixion, it says, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments and cast by
1: casting lots. Back in at verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Now pay close attention to this next verse, verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Posterity shall serve him, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Okay, so having read that long psalm and noted its parallels to Matthew 27, we come up with an interesting conundrum here. David starts with a desperate cry to God. He asks God, Why are you absent? Why have you forsaken me? But by the end, David is declaring, He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. So is David contradicting himself? Is the Lord forsaking David in this psalm or not? Is he hiding his face or not? How should we understand this, John? I think some of the ideas that we talked about in the last episode will be really
0: helpful here. Namely, the importance of considering the genre of a particular document when you're trying to interpret it. Now, before we were talking about the context of Proverbs, now, here, the psalms, they're very similar. We have to be attentive to what they're actually saying and also the, the, the genre of the psalms when we're trying to interpret them. The psalms are not like the letters of Paul or really like the direct teachings of Jesus, and they're not really like a textbook either. So they're much more expressive uh, in the sense that they're, they're more like emotional songs, many of which are actually very dark, and some of them are outright pessimistic. One of the common themes that you'll find throughout the Psalms is that they are very honest with God about how we as humans are feeling. Now, since the Psalms are these kind of emotional, poetic literature, we need to be aware that sometimes the Psalms are saying things that the Psalmist is feeling rather than things that are actually technically, theologically true in an absolute sense, like the kind of true that you'd read in the Apostles' Creed or in a theology textbook. Now, maybe an example that we could use of this, you know, this is just sort of the way that humans use language in a lot of situations. You could think of an example of perhaps like two parents talking and one of them is relating to the other about how they had to ground their their son or their daughter because of some misbehavior that they had. And they could end that sentence by saying, man, my kid hates me right now. Well, I mean, it's not absolutely true that their child does harbor hatred for them really, they're just kind of trying to express that their kid is pretty upset that they've had their privileges taken away. And I think similar things to this are used throughout the Psalms, where the psalmist is using language to express a feeling or an experience that doesn't necessarily perfectly correspond with an absolute theological truth if you were trying to express the same sentence in a, in a much more technical way. Now, to be sure, this does not mean that there aren't plenty of theological truths about God in the Psalms. It simply means that we just need to be careful uh, as to the overall purpose of the Psalms when we interpret them. So in the context of Psalm 22, when the psalmist says that he has been forsaken by God, but then says that God has not in fact forsaken him, it should clue us in that maybe there's a little bit something more going on here. As an aside, it's actually really cool that we have a book like the Psalms in the Bible. The Psalms encourage us to be open and honest with God in our prayers about how we are actually feeling, how we're truly feeling in the moment. And this does help reveal an important truth about life. Our feelings, the experience that we have, it doesn't ultimately define what's true or false in an absolute or a theological or technical sense. But our experiences still do matter a lot to God. And this also comes out when we're interpreting Scripture. It's okay to say sometimes that, you know, like, I know that Scripture teaches this thing, but, you know, I don't particularly like it. You know, my experience of it is that it's hard. And, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you should ignore what Scripture is saying or find a way around it, but that you should just acknowledge that that's the place that you're in right now. And more to the point, you should be praying to God about that to sort through those feelings. Now, this is particularly true in the context of something like the doctrine of God's judgment or God's wrath. I mean, I'm not sure anybody would say that God's wrath is something that's like comfortable or pleasant or nice to think about necessarily. However, it's an important topic in scripture, and it's even at play here in both Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. In fact, this seems to be exactly what Jesus is wrestling with on the cross. He's being tempted to despair and to lose all of his hope in the Father. Now, this temptation is intense in the moment, but it really seems to me that what Jesus is doing when he's using the words of Psalm 22 on the cross is that he is expressing that experience that he's having, but at the same time reinforcing that, in fact, he does have trust in the Father, that he will be vindicated, and that he does not have to fall into that temptation of despair.
1: Certainly, John. And I think, you know, uh, in light of Hebrews uh, 4.15, is it 4.15 saying that, um, that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way? just as we are. And I think this helps us too, to recognize that Jesus is being tempted and is overcoming that temptation in a really powerful way on the cross. But let's think of some other examples of this in the Bible, just in case we have the skeptical listener who's wondering, okay, sure. But at the end of the day, Jesus is still asking why God has forsaken him. And it seems like we might be trying to go around what the text is saying. Technically, uh, when we're talking about this kind of a psalm, the the word that's often used is a lament, right? That's the genre of this psalm. And we're talking about deep and powerful expressions of grief when we talk about lament. There's other examples of lament in the psalms. Uh, Here's one example from Psalm 13, the first verse, kind of similar to Psalm 22. The psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You know, which, again, is contradicted in Psalm 22 when it says that he's not hidden his face from the afflicted. But it's important to keep in mind, it's not a contradiction because <laughs> the intent of these statements is to groan and express grief, not to make some sort of absolute statement. There's also other books other than the Psalms which use lament, and the most obvious of which is, drumroll please, the Book of Lamentations shocking, right? <laughs> it's literally a whole book of the Bible, but literally a whole book of the Bible named after the lament. Um, I mean, listen to some of this stuff. Uh, verse seven of chapter two, the Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. Chapter four, verse 16, the Lord himself has scattered them, talking about the people of Judah. He will regard them no more. Now, really? Is it technically true that God would never regard the people of Judah again after they were judged in 586 BC? Well, obviously not because the Messiah comes, you know, some 600 years later, right? Um, so again, good, good reasons to understand this genre um, and not take it at face value without regard to the context. One last one here. The other prophets also are full of uh, lament. Well, here's one in the book of Habakkuk. Um, chapter 1, verse 13. Speaking to God here, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Well, is it true that God idly looks at traitors? Is it true that God doesn't care about evil doing? Well, obviously not. Again, the prophet is expressing things from his perspective.
0: Yeah, Jeremy, it's really funny that you mention uh, Habakkuk one thirteen because that passage itself is used by some to justify the idea that the father forsook the son on the cross. You know, this statement of God, uh, the statement that is of God saying, you know, you have pure eyes uh, than to see evil and, you know, you cannot look at wrong. So, you know, the idea here is that, you know, God has to hide his face from the sun as he bore the sins of the world because God cannot look on sin. He cannot look on evil. In fact, that seems to be kind of the logic that uh, uh, brother Billy Graham uses in his article. But I, I think that this is kind of pressing the language of Habakkuk a little bit too far. I'm not sure that's quite what the prophet means when he's saying this. I think it's much better to interpret this as to say that God does not approve of sin, not, you know, to say that God is, like, incapable of looking upon sin. Because, I mean, if that's the case, God literally couldn't look on anybody because we're all sinful. And, in fact, the effects of sin have infected the whole world. You know, going by this logic, we would have to say that, like, God has turned his face and forsook all of humanity and all of the world because, you know, sin is part of all of that. So, like, I don't think that quite makes a whole lot of sense given the context. I think that really more what Habakkuk 1:13 is talking about here is you know trying to call God to action of saying that you know this is you, you know it's not like you to idly look at traitors or to remain silent and not to say that that's what God is actually doing but that it is calling God to uh, uh, to bring forth His justice. Well, that's a lot of material that we just went through there. Let's see if we can kind of summarize and boil it down a little bit and come back to Psalm 22. So. The, the genre that's at play here in Psalm 22 is this idea of lament where the author is expressing these deep truths about their own experience and kind of embedded inside of that expression of their experience is definitely theological truth. But we need to be a little bit careful when we're interpreting it because, you know, we don't want to conflate something that a person is feeling with the actual like reality of what is uh, uh, true about God in an absolute sense. So when we come to the first verse of Psalm 22 and the author leads with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that it would be wrong for us to immediately jump to the point of, ah, yes, this clearly means that God has turned his face away from the psalmist in this absolute sense that God uh, has, you know, completely forsaken them, they're totally on their own, Um, you know, in part because that's not really how laments work as a genre, and then in part because later in the psalm, the psalmist contradicts that very idea by saying that they are in fact not forsaken by God, but that they are trusting upon his deliverance, and that he will in fact be vindicated in the
1: end. Totally. I think we understand Psalm 22, which is the most important thing, the first question we have to ask, but what about that second question? How is this quotation being used by the New Testament? First thing that we need to note, and we've already sort of been talking around this, but it is important to bring it up here. When Jesus quotes this first verse of Psalm 22, he is not only referencing that one verse and trying to make a point with it with the verse ripped out of context. He intends for us to be thinking of the entire psalm. And one reason we should think this way is that it's simply common sense. In everyday speech, we refer to larger sayings by quoting single lines from it. I mean, you know, like maybe you're talking to your friend and you're like, oh, hey, you know, the song that goes this way, right? And you give maybe a, a line from the chorus of the song. You're not just talking about that one line. You're talking about the whole song. Um, Jesus, of course, was highly well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures. He knew what he was quoting. He knew what Psalm 22 was about. And, you know, that's obviously the case because he was the son of God and he wrote the word of God. You know, the spirit um, inspired the writing of it. Um, but also it's true just because we know who Jesus was. He was a highly, you know, thoughtful first century rabbi. He certainly knew Psalm 22 and its context. Uh, but more importantly, Matthew himself uses Psalm 22 throughout Matthew 27 in an attempt to portray Jesus's sufferings as the fullest expression of the sufferings David was describing. And this is where we kind of bring together what we were saying earlier about, you know, dividing his garments and all this talk about they encircle me, right, and they taunt me. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. Matthew wants us to interpret the events of the crucifixion in light of Psalm 22. That's why there's all of this direct quotation from it with the mockers saying, oh, he trusts in God. If the horrors described in Psalm 22 are what evildoers will do to David, how much more will evildoers viciously attack Jesus, who is great David's greater son? That is the point Matthew intends to make in Matthew 27. And if we are consistent in this interpretation, this also means that if God did not abandon David, God will even more certainly not abandon the son and hide his face from him. And we could talk more about, uh, if we had a longer episode, we could talk more about all of the ways in which the Gospel of Matthew is intended to highlight this point of Jesus being the true Davidic king, the truest of this kingly line. and it starts from the very beginning of the book of Matthew with the genealogy showing that Jesus is descended from David. Uh, but anyways, that, the point being that this is a deliberate choice Matthew is making. And so in, in particular, when we see all of these allusions to Psalm 22, that is encouraging us to think of Psalm 22 as a whole, as an interpretation and explanation for the crucifixion that was written hundreds of years prior to the crucifixion. So therefore, we conclude when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is entering the world of the lament in the psalm. He's explaining and crying the depths of the reality of his suffering. He bled and he suffocated and he died on the cross for our sins in our place. And during that moment, he was not actually abandoned by the Father, but he certainly did feel ultimate abandonment. The pain of bearing the sins of the world was such that he felt as though that close relationship with his father had been severed, regardless of his certain knowledge that that was not in fact the case, as David himself thought in Psalm 22. And that's not all that Jesus
0: is expressing. It's not merely just this lament in the first part of the psalm, but he's referencing the psalm, it begins with this lament, but in fact it ends with hope. He is also proclaiming his trust in God in an ironic reversal of the mockery of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and and even the thieves who are next to him. All of these people are mocking him. You know, the chief priests and the scribes are even saying, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. But meanwhile, Jesus, despite the depths of his pain, is enunciating his absolute confidence that the Father will, in fact, deliver him. But not by removing the pain of the cross. Instead, he is going to deliver Jesus in an even more grandiose way than the mockers could even imagine. The Father is actually going to resurrect Jesus from the dead. And this gives us the full meaning of Psalm 22. But given this interpretation and what we're arguing that it isn't that the Father was hiding his face from the Son— you know, what is it that the Father was doing in this context? So let's look at some other Bible verses to see, you know, what is it that was actually happening on the cross other than Jesus' experience of feeling the rejection of God. Well, walking through a few examples here, kind of the first thing that comes to mind for me is that Scripture actually describes Christ's sacrifice itself as something that's pleasing to God. Here we see in Ephesians 5 verse 2, walk in love as christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god now the idea here of a fragrant offering or that of like a pleasing aroma is something that's utilized throughout the book of leviticus to describe offerings that are made in a way that are in line with god's command and that they are kind of part of the authorized worship of god in the old covenant And so the idea here is that Christ's sacrifice of himself is pleasing to God. It is this pleasing aroma. It's this fragrant offering in the same vein as the the kinds of sacrifices and offerings that are described in the book of Leviticus. So in that sense, Christ can't be this like totally abhorrent thing that God can't possibly look at because in Ephesians, we get this idea that the thing that Jesus is doing is actually in and of itself pleasing
1: to God. Certainly, Scripture even speaks of the aroma itself, as you were saying, with the idea of the fragrance of this offering. That when the the aroma hits the Lord's nostrils, speaking metaphorically, of course, um, that it actually turns away his wrath. And that's a, a common way of speaking about the aroma of an offering in the Old Testament. Here's another text, though, that I think is super crucial. This one's quoted a lot. It's from Isaiah chapter 53. Um, it's a prophecy about the Messiah. And it actually reveals a lot about the relationship between this Messiah, who is described as a servant who is suffering, and the relationship that this Messiah has between the Father and the Son. So I'm going to quote a few verses here, starting from verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jumping down a few verses to verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied." By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him, that's God the Father, I, God the Father, will divide him, the Son, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors." Real quick, let's uh, talk about a, a particular Hebrew word in this passage. In verse 10, where it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That word in Hebrew is chafetz. The most straightforward way that you would translate chafetz is actually not the word will. It's the word pleasure. Um, so there's multiple reputable translations, actually. The New American Standard, the New King James, the original Old King James, which we were sort of hard on last week, but this week we'll will uh, sing its praises, and also the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they actually all render hafez as pleasure. They all say something along the lines of, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Uh, The ESV, which is what we normally read on the show, it's chosen the word will instead. Now, that is a valid way to translate hafez, but it is important to understand that the kind of will being talked about is not some emotionally detached decision like, God didn't just dispassionately decide that the son must die on the cross for the sins of the world. The reason for his the, his decision is because the decision pleased him. So it, it's not, you know, I think the word will can sometimes connote, you know, like there's just like an impersonal God in heaven who's just deciding, oh, this has to happen in order for my plan to come into place. So therefore, I have no option but for my son to die, even though it's going to make me really angry and all of this, right? The The word hafez doesn't allow for that. It means a pleasing decision. Just to give one more example of the way that this Hebrew word is used, we can look at Psalm 115 and 3, which says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So a lot of translations will translate that as he pleases instead of he wills. You know, partially because he does all that he wills is a little bit of a repetitive idea when it comes to God, but it also gives this extra shade of meaning to it of, you know, the things that please God are the things that come to pass. That's how he decides what to do. So Isaiah 53 therefore indicates that while God the Son did bore our sins on himself on the cross, and God the Father punished those sins with the penalty that sin deserves, God's anger was not directed at the Son himself, but rather on the sins that he was bearing. And this nuance is a little difficult to wrap our heads around, but Pay close attention to the language of verse 12 here in Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes, num- and makes intercession for the transgressors. So notice those three crucial words, therefore, because, yet. The flow of thought goes kind of like this. I will reward the son and those whom he dies for, which is the divide him a portion part. And I will do this BECAUSE he was willing to give himself up to die and suffer the punishment of the transgressors, yet the punishment he bore wasn't because he himself was a transgressor, but because he wanted to make intercession for the transgressors. So the text declares that the father considers the son to be praiseworthy for his willingness to suffer on the behalf of other people. And because of this praiseworthy behavior, the father is going to bestow blessing and reward upon the son. So the father is not displeased with the son in Isaiah 53, even as he hangs bleeding on the cross, suffering the penalty for sin. Despite all appearances to the contrary, the father is actually immensely pleased with him. He, you know, has hafetz. Um, It's not just that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, but rather the sacrifice itself was pleasing to God.
0: You know, all of this discussion actually reminds me of the second chapter of the book of Philippians and its glorious statement about Jesus. Um, I, I think it might actually have a similar pattern to this same thought that we've just seen in Isaiah 53. Here, I'll read verses 4 through 11 of Philippians 2. Let each of you, that is the church at Philippi, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, Paul says that Christ humbled himself by becoming a man, even though he was God. He, quote, took the form of a servant. Now, this echoes the language of Isaiah 53 in the description here. It says that Jesus was the righteous one, my servant. Now, Jesus was obedient, and it says to the point of death. But this does beg the question of who was he obedient to? Now, I think obviously it's that Jesus was obedient to the Father. So therefore, as a result of his willingness to be humble and obedient to the Father, God has highly exalted him, such that everyone worships Jesus and confesses him as as Lord. And note that this is all, quote, to the glory of God the Father. So the Father commands the Son to suffer on behalf of us sinners. The Son, fully knowing the depths of pain that this will involve, including the feeling of this absence from the Father, he humbly obeys. As a result, the Father's pleasure in the Son's obedience drives the Father to exalt the Son by raising Him from the dead, and once Jesus ascends, He sits at the right hand of the Father. And the people whom He died for, now they confess His Lordship and worship Him forever. I mean, this is incredible, the tight-knit relationship between the Father and the Son, including the Son's trust in the Father, even when everything looks bleak, even when He's hanging on the cross. And the result of all of this is their mutual glorification, that both the Father and the Son are glorified in this. Now, this is the triune God's plan to glorify Himself. It is through this sacrifice. So, the Father gives His only Son, the Son willingly gives Himself, and He does so to save us sinners who deserve only death. Now, of course, this giving was painful. I mean, the father gave up his only son. In this sense, we might poetically say that the father turns his face away, but I mean only in the sense of this giving of his son. The father definitely would be is grieved to see the son experience this pain, but on the basis of the text that we've read here, the father was also never more proud or more pleased of the thing that the son was doing. So, In this, the father is not uh, 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 rejecting the son in this moment, but he was never more pleased of the son.
1: Wow. Okay. So we've looked at lots of texts (laughs) to resolve this issue. We've kind of made the case for this uh, perspective about Jesus's statement on the cross. But before we move on to application, I'd just like to quickly note that there are Broader theological problems at stake here as well. Going away from the actual text of the Bible for a second, on first glance, the idea of the Father forsaking or abandoning the Son would just seem to contradict the doctrine of the Trinity. How can the persons of the Trinity somehow not be in full cooperation and communion with one another? At any point in time, it would seem that any forsaking or abandoning, in any sense, would create a rift within the Trinity. And then God would cease to be the eternal, unchangeable God. Now, it seems to me that those who would say that the Father actually did forsake the Son during his crucifixion need to have a good explanation for how this is consistent with Christian beliefs about the Trinity. And to be very clear, we're not accusing Billy Graham or Wayne Grudem or any other Christian of denying the doctrine of the Trinity. We're simply suggesting that their thinking is perhaps a bit inconsistent or perhaps their thinking is correct but they're not phrasing their thoughts in a way that lines up exactly with the way that the biblical text explains it. Now, of course, Billy Graham is with the Lord now, so his theology far exceeds John and I's. So far be it it for me to criticize one of the departed saints in heaven, but as far as that statement goes, I think we could be a little more precise with our use of language. And so there's the Trinity thing um, when it comes to my concerns with the theology here, but I think it's also worth really quickly bringing up here at the end as well. We mentioned... Habakkuk 1.13 earlier, with this idea that God cannot look on sin, and it can't be in his presence. I find this statement to just be super non-precise, to such an extent that it's kind of meaningless. Like, what do we mean when we say that? God is omnipresent, and sin exists. So, I mean, certainly sin exists in the presence of God, in at least one important sense. Um, To judge sin, it has to be in your presence, in some sense. So, I mean, I get what they're trying to say. I think the point of the statement is that for us to be with Christ in heaven, we have to be made righteous and our sins need to be dealt with, which, yes and amen, that's very true as far as it goes, but it's not a super well-defined statement. So then I think people are taking that kind of not exactly biblical, not well-defined statement, and then just sort of applying it to this idea of God the Father's you know, disposition toward the Son on the cross. When you know it's not necessarily a great phrase to begin with, and it's especially not really applicable to this particular issue. So, admittedly, it's difficult to know exactly what we want to say about this because there's a lot of nuance, as we were saying earlier. You know, the son is burying the sins of the world, and the wrath of God is being poured out, you know, on the son in bodily form, and he dies for those sins. So, but then at the same time, the father is not angry with the son, he's pleased with his sacrifice. That's pretty nuanced, and and so <laughs> I don't want to be too harsh on anybody. There's a great amount of mystery to this, so I think we can work together, you know, as believers to try to think of a a the right way to talk about the Father and the Son, um and and how this works as Jesus is hanging on the cross. So if you're out there listening and you think there's a better way to understand this, or maybe we're being nitpicky, um <laughs> we'd love to hear that feedback. And uh, I mean, we could use it. This has been hard for us to write this episode as well. With that being said, let's take a look at some application of these heady ideas. It's time for the other meat. So application point number
0: one. This is more of a interpretation pro tip. And that is when there are references to the Old Testament uh, in the New Testament. And I mean, gosh, that happens all the time. It's really important that you go track down and investigate. Like, what is it that that Old Testament reference like actually means? And, I mean, there are multiple ways that the Old Testament get u- gets used. I mean, sometimes it's a direct quotation. Other times it's more of, like, an allusion, where it's just kind of like a similar-ish kind of language. But, I mean, the, you know the, the Bible has plenty of these examples in the New Testament. And a lot of Bibles actually will give you cross-references in the margin. So, you know, there will be, as you're reading through, there will be some kind of, like, footnote... That will, uh, you know, either at the bottom of the page or in the margin of the page, it will have a reference of saying like, oh, in in verse three, this is, you know, actually making an allusion or a reference to Psalm, you know, whatever. And then you can go and you can track down and see what those Old Testament passages are actually saying. And I guarantee you, when you start looking at what the Old Testament says and how the New Testament authors are utilizing it, it's going to blow your mind. And the second point of application is just an encouragement in that same vein. And that encouragement is to be well-versed in the Old Testament. Uh, Because understanding the Old Testament, like we just said, is critical to understanding the New Testament. It's awesome to check out what those cross-references are. But, I mean, you also need to cultivate a deep understanding of the Old Testament if when you go and look at that cross-reference, you want to understand what it's actually saying. And then to be able to apply it to what the New Testament authors are saying. You know, we need to know things like that the Psalms are these, you know, use this poetic language. We need to understand what they're for and how they've been interpreted by the first Christians in the New Testament. You know, Jesus and the apostles and all of the early church, they were Old Testament experts. I mean, the Old Testament was the only Bible that they had early on, and they knew it front to back. Many of them were able to in, to quote the entire Torah. That, that's the the first five books, like Genesis through Deuteronomy there. They could quote the entire Torah. They could quote the entire uh, uh, book of Psalms. So, I mean, the Old Testament is just as much the Word of God as the New Testament is. And if we're neglecting that huge chunk of God's Word, then how are we ever going to expect to understand the New Testament properly? How are we, you know, expecting that it's going to come and transform our lives? I mean, I, th- I guess the encouragement here is let's take the same perspective of the Old Testament that Jesus had of the Old Testament. This book that should be read over and over and over again. It should be breathed in in everything that you do in your life. It should form the way that you think, the way that you talk, the way that you act. So let's just be more like Christ in our approach to the Old Testament.
1: Amen to that. Well, um... Apart from just uh, interpreting the Bible considerations, just some other theological considerations. Uh, Third point of application, if the Father and the Son are perfectly united in purpose, along with the Holy Spirit, who we didn't talk about much today, but he's there as well. uh, If all of the actions of each person in the Trinity are perfectly pleasing to the other persons of the Trinity, then we too, as Christ's body, should seek to emulate God and to be unified with one another. Unity is not always attainable. The Bible does explain reasons why we might choose to, you know, go our separate ways, but it is the goal we ought to strive toward. Our bias ought to be toward mercy and charity to one another, not division. Fourth point of application. All Christians experience times where we lack the feeling of God being present with us. Maybe we feel like our prayers are going nowhere and not even being listened to. If that's the case, Rejoice <laughs> because David was in the same place, so you are not in a bad spot, maybe a disappointing spot, but you're not in a bad spot. All Christians go through that, so maybe you're just discouraged by the daily grind of life. It doesn't even have to be anything special or or especially sad um, but don't despair. God has not abandoned you. Uh, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose so You know, rest assured, your doubts will not go unanswered forever. And lastly, point five uh, for application, let us rejoice and be thankful to Jesus for suffering this great agony on the cross in our place. I mean, we've been talking about theology this whole time, and, um, you know, we've been focusing on the positive that the father didn't abandon the son, but it remains true that for Jesus at that moment, it very much felt otherwise. And we should be thankful to him for suffering that penalty in our place God the Son, eternal and infinite, became man, and he suffered in such a brutal way that he felt that that closeness with himself and God the Father being torn apart. and He really did suffer that penalty, so let's be thankful and worship him. It's time for milk, not solid food.
0: Amen, Jeremy. Well, you know, to quote the Apostle Peter, there are some things that Paul says which are hard to understand, but... Both Paul, the rest of the biblical authors, including David and Matthew, they all said plenty of things which are, in fact, quite easy to understand. So let's just sit for a moment in thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us and also reflecting on these words from Romans 5, 8. But God, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you so much for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, or maybe a perfectly rational one, feel free to lambast us on social media. I mean, alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions that you think we can answer, you can send them to the John 3:15 Podcast at gmail.com. That's the John 3:15 Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.